1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Jacqueline and Simon Mitten, authors of the book Vera Rubin, A Life. Jacqueline, Simon, welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Thank
1: you. Uh, Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
2: Shall I go first? Yeah, I'm named first on the cover, so I might as well. <clears throat> um, well, I'm, I'm Jacqueline. Um, I, uh, I'm an astronomer by background. I wanted to do astronomy from a very early age, and I followed that through with uh, taking a degree in physics and a PhD in astronomy. But um, in the end, I didn't have a research career. I've actually spent most of my life, um, my astronomical life, um, involved in bringing the subject to wider audiences in one way or another. So, uh, for example, for quite a long period, I was the press and publicity officer for the Royal Astronomical Society in London, uh, I've done quite a lot of writing, a lot of talking, quite a lot of media, all sorts of things. Um, so I always reckoned I had one foot in the media and one foot in academia, if that makes any any sense, it's because in order to keep up, uh, it was also necessary to keep up all the connections with the professional astronomers uh, th- that I know. So. Um, often going to professional meetings, keeping up with what's the latest research and so on. So um, also, I had a long-standing interest in women in astronomy that goes right back to having not such an easy time myself but when I first started out. It was extremely unusual for women to go into astronomy. There weren't many of them, and. Um, so I've always been fascinated by the stories of, of, of other women who have succeeded in astronomy despite the difficulties in their um, in their path, and um, so this was a, a marvelous thing to do. It was a sort of natural thing to do. Um, We've. I've written altogether something like thirty books as author or co-author. Quite a lot for children, reference books, all sorts of things. Working with um, other professional astronomers who are active uh, in research. So, yeah, that that's roughly something about me and what I've been doing. Simon,
3: hi. Yes, Jacqueline and I uh, met when we were both undergraduates at the University of Oxford and it was at a meeting of the Oxford University Astronomical Society. Uh, I came to Cambridge in 1968 to do a doctorate at the Department of Physics in Radio Astronomy. Uh, After that, I had a postdoctoral spell at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. I did that for about five or six years. And then I got headhunted by Cambridge University Press to take charge of their um, publishing in the physical sciences, including astronomy, astrophysics, uh, and so on. And I enjoyed that enormously. Uh, I did it for a little over 20 years. And in the course of working on the astronomy list, uh, I probably visited the United States Three or four times a year, for meetings of the American Astronomical Society and so on. So um, I got to, I got to know uh, a lot of astronomers in the U.S., uh, including Vera, Rubin, including Vera Rubin, and um, I had visited uh, visited her in her in her place of work while I was at Cambridge University Press. Um, so that's basically. Uh, my story, when I'd had enough of being a publisher, I went back to being an academic specializing in the history of science, particularly astronomy and biography.
1: So what led the two of you to decide to write a biography of your Reuben, and why did you both decide to make it a joint project, especially considering it sounds like that that both of you are equally qualified to tackle it on your own?
2: Well, the opportunity came our way. Um, we hadn't thought of the idea, but we had a tip-off from a colleague, and that was that Harvard University Press were interested in commissioning a biography of Vera Rubin. This was less than a year after she yes. died in December 2016, and indeed the colleague um, was on the lookout to help Harvard uh, recruit um an author and somebody who we knew very well from going to the American Astronomical Society (laughs) Uh, and so uh, we looked at this email that came it was addressed originally to Simon Uh, Simon uh, although I've written a lot of books Simon had written a biography and I haven't Simon had uh, a few years ago wrote a biography of um, the cosmologist Fred Hoyle yeah so we looked at this, and um, uh, so at that time, Simon had uh, just, he was just in the early stages of a rather yeah. different book project.
3: Yes, I'd, I'd got a big book project going at the time. This was with the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington um, to support one of their projects on the properties of the element carbon in the Earth's interior. And uh, I, ha- I, had this, I had this large project to write a history stretching over something like 400 years um, on the history of uh, the, the science of looking at the carbon deep in the Earth. Mm. That was a fascinating uh, project, but um, it meant that, that I could not start work on Vera Rubin straight away, whereas Jacqueline was able to do so.
2: And, and furthermore, um, although Simon's always been an enthusiast for promoting women astronomers, um, uh, I suppose it was a bit my territory mm. because, in some ways, I could identify with with Vera Rubin um, uh, because uh, you know I've been I've been through a similar kind of of he- history of of having struggles and having to make myself look plausible as a girl and a woman who wanted to do astronomy and had had experience that was parallel with hers i knew what it felt like to go and observe in a cold dome (laughs) and uh and to spend hours poring over a measuring machine over plates of stellar spectra and so on and um uh i've I felt passionate for so long really about promoting women in astronomy. I thought this was a terrific opportunity. Well, not only that, um, I'd observed how much satisfaction and enjoyment Simon got out of writing the biography of Fred Hoyle. And in particular, I thought how exciting it would be to be able to go and research somebody's life right from scratch somebody who for whom there wasn't a biography somebody who clearly deserved a biography a woman uh so prominent um and uh it just sounded so exciting i wasn't even worried about making any money out of the book i mean it was just wanting to do it so we it certainly wasn't the first time we would have um done a project together we've, we've done quite a few projects oh,
3: we we've said yeah we've done several yeah. joint projects and, and we
2: greatly enjoy sh- something that we can share um and so it it, it was obvious really um we put in a joint proposal um and in fact uh it was fairly clear from the start i would probably have the time to do the bulk of the work anyway but um Simon would make a contribution, which he did, of some three chapters. Yes. Uh, and he would also be able to kind of bring the um, the relevant uh, expertise and experience of having researched a biography uh, before. So, um, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, well, it didn't take much of a decision,
3: no, it did it? Didn't, it, didn't much, it didn't take much of a decision. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, a further thing that was very attractive about the project was that um, Vera's papers were already in the Library of Congress, um, and uh, cataloguing or assessing them had already started. Uh, so, um we we sensed that we might be the first scholars to be able to get permission to look at these these uh, papers, and uh, fortunately for us, that is what happened. The Library of Congress was incredibly um, supportive and helpful, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so uh, we had we had two uh, um, two week sessions essentially. Fantastic of, of trips! Fantastic <laughs> trips! A wonderful going-
2: place to work.
3: Yeah, i go, uh, going through the papers yeah. um, in the uh, in the Library of Congress.
2: We we certainly had a moment of panic though because we we knew that the in fact we had been told by the librarian at um, Carnegie where Vera um, Rubin had worked that the papers had gone in 2014 to the Library of Congress, and we assumed that by 2018. <laughs> uh, that it, it never crossed our minds so we booked our air tickets and everything and when um, I'd done my homework and I, and I contacted the library to say um, are these uh, available in the main library or are they in stacks to be fetched and it came back and uh, these are only just in process of being um, <laughs> catalogued, of being catalogued. Uh, they're not open to the public and uh, we had a couple of days of utter panic but I mean, it was then wonderful because the next thing was, um, they said, well, we'll see what we can do. And we heard directly from the archivist who was working on it. And she, she couldn't have been more helpful. Um, it turned out that her son was doing a, uh, a postgraduate degree in the history of science in Cambridge, and that she'd taken on the Vera Rubin project because she was interested because of what he was doing. <laughs> and so the connection built up and um, we met her on the several occasions. Yeah, we yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're in correspondence with her and, and it, it it just couldn't have worked out better. So we were, and it, it was a lovely place to work. So yes, wonderful experience. It, it really did meet yeah. all those expectations of being an exciting project to share. We had a you know, great time in Washington. Yeah, we did. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that's that's a bit of history.
1: One of the things I really enjoyed uh, in reading the book was, you know, reading about what Vera Rubin did as an astronomer and her discoveries regarding uh, you know, stellar cartography, dark matter. But that human side of her comes across very well. And I think it especially comes across very well when you're talking about her early years and what led her to become an astronomer. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a little bit about her childhood, her family background, and why it was that she chose to undertake this you know, this path to becoming an astronomer, which as as you made clear, it was not an easy thing to do, especially at that time. Well,
2: there it was just captivated by the stars as a young girl. And again, I could really identify with with yeah. this because I had exactly the same experience from, I think, from about the age of seven. I just looked up and I thought, ah, you know, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> and exa- that's exactly what, what Vera did. Um, her family, she came from a close-knit Jewish family. Um, her father had been brought from Eastern Europe by his parents when he was the age of seven. This is going back to about 1900. And uh, the family were fleeing persecution of Jewish people in Eastern Europe, and they joined part of a very big migration to the United States. Um, So um, her father changed his name, and uh, and he came with his wife and his young family to uh, New York State, and uh, 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 so um, th- there was uh, the part of the family was already in the United States. So in fact, Vera then had quite a bit of of, of family um, in in the uh, in the United States already. Um, they'd settled first of all in in Gloversville. Uh, because um, her grandfather was in the glove-making trade uh, and the family also, some of the family were in Philadelphia where they'd set up a a leather goods shop. And she was actually born in in Philadelphia. Um, But uh, they moved to Washington uh, when Vera was something like 10 10 years old Um, We learned a great deal about the background from an absolutely incredible uh, recorded uh, account of um, his early life from Vera's father, who was known as Pete. And um, uh, when he was in his 80s, they got him to recount the memories of his life. And uh, he was a tremendous raconteur. And the family, who've also been incredibly helpful to us, at one point, we didn't know about this this recording, they just got in touch and they said, we've discussed this between us, we think you should have these recordings, yeah. uh, and they are absolutely wonderful. So a lot of the colourful detail in the early chapters comes from Pete's recollection of his his early life and all the things that happened, including the family coming through the Great Depression in the 1930s and what family life was, was like as, as, as well. Um, so that was a, a tremendous resource. Anyway, they finally fetched up in in Washington, D.C., and um, Vera and her sister Ruth uh, had a bedroom that looked out in the northern direction. In those days, the lights weren't particularly bright in Washington, and uh, she was able to see the stars, and she noticed that she could see the stars um, moving around. That's because of of the rotation of the Earth. But she got fascinated, and, uh, well, the rest's history, as they say. (laughs) Um, She she had the calling, and uh, uh, from there on, she was pretty well determined that she wanted to uh, be an astronomer. And um, by the age of 15, she'd persuaded her father, who had a degree in electrical engineering, to help her construct a rather simple homemade telescope, and she was taking photographs of um, the, the night sky, um, setting a camera with the shutter open so that you get a time exposure of the stars moving around the North Celestial Pole and getting the trails. And uh, uh, you can see the very picture that uh, Vera took in, in the book and, and picture of her, her homemade, homemade telescope. And so there was no doubt in her mind no. that this was the direction she was going in. She didn't know any astronomers, she certainly didn't know any female astronomers, but she knew she was going to be one <laughs> and she was,
3: uh, yeah, and she was she was determined to go to college um and uh, and do astronomy
2: absolutely she she rather went off the idea of physics I mean these days. We would say to people, "Oh, you need to do physics, really, or mathematics, or something, if is uh, rather than start astronomy um, as an undergraduate course." Uh, f- um, but um, she uh, fell out with her physics teacher, who she regarded as being sexist, and by everything in her <laughs> account, he was. <laughs> uh, and she was uh, even in those days, as a, a as a rather um, young woman. Uh, that streak of stubbornness and determination came out. Mm-hmm. And um, so she uh, she came to dislike the physics classes, which was a great shame, really. But it, fortunately, in, in Vera's mind, physics and astronomy were different. She could separate the two. But it was sufficiently bad that she wanted to major in astronomy and not in physics. And... Um, and that was something that stayed with her all her life, actually, the, the um, this seed of um, uh, dislike that was sown by this physics teacher. It just shows how damaging it can be. But fortunately for us, Vera did not give up on astronomy.
1: I actually find that fascinating, considering that uh, later on, uh, she ends up teaching physics at a community college, which I was thinking, that must have been very interesting <laughs> for her. <laughs>
2: She didn't last long, though. She was (laughs) back doing astronomy as soon as she could.
1: (laughs) So one of the things yep. i thought was interesting of reading about her uh her, her educational career is that when she's in college uh at, at, at Vassar, it's it's a very interesting period to be getting a degree because she is a woman who is going to uh, college at a, at a time when you know not most women didn't do that but she's also going during the second world war and how that creates its own set of challenges because science is being repurposed a lot of people are being drawn into it but they're being drawn into various fields And astronomy is not one of the ones that is as quite as much of a beneficiary of this as say uh, electrical engineering, electronics, physics, chemistry, what have you. So what was that college experience like and, and how and, and w- in what ways was she confirmed on her course and what were some of the uh, challenges that she faced in terms of pursuing that that astronomy focused degree? Well, well, well
2: as you say, she chose Vassar. College, which was a very um, appropriate choice for her because Vassar College was, uh, um, well, it was founded, uh, it still was by the time she went, as a college for for women. And the very first professor of astronomy there was uh, the United States' most famous female astronomer of um, the 19th century, Mariah Mitchell. And uh, Mitchell established the School of Astronomy there. Uh, She was a very, very distinguished teacher, and she set up an ethos for the teaching, which actually surpassed what was happening in many of the men's colleges at the time. She she believed strongly in practical training, uh, which was not happening, for instance, to the men who went to Harvard. And um, she set up this... uh, great tradition of the way uh, astronomy would be taught in what is, was in any case um, a very broad uh, liberal arts college where, where my, many different subjects were being were being taught. And that tradition had been followed through with women succeeding Mariah Mitchell. Um, uh, her pupil and so on um, had succeeded as professors of astronomy so unusually there was a professor of astronomy and a very proud background of Vassar for its astronomy and um, Matthew Vassar had also provided enormous observatory there (laughs) as well (laughs) as part of the money because he was so keen to get Mariah Mitchell Um, so it was an exceptional place for her to go and when she arrived, it was actually 1945. The war had ended, and but of course the situation in the college was still—it was still somewhat on a wartime footing, and um, they even had some men students um, yeah. because uh, um, the, the, there wasn't enough places in, in college and accommodation for the. Uh, the GIs coming back and um, some of them who lived at home locally uh, attended um, uh, Vassar. And um, there are some uh, considerable descriptions of how they had to sort of cope for themselves a bit. It was different. Um, but um, the, the astronomers did find things to do yeah. that, 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 that helped with the, the war effort. There was radio science and meteorology and various things. But certainly when when Vera landed there, it was solidly traditional teaching of astronomy. And her professor was, was Maud Maykampson, who was an expert both in um, orbital dynamics and more latterly in uh, archaeoastronomy. So... She was able to get her fill of, of astronomy there, and also um, uh, there were many other things she was able to to study in, in her course. Um, uh, but interestingly, she avoided physics. She didn't do any physics at all in her first year. No. and She had this sort of physics deficit, <laughs> which... Um, uh, she realized at some point would have to be addressed because uh she just needed some credits in in, in physics uh, but um so ultimately she did do some physics but um it kind of stayed with her that the professor of physics uh, in a reference um, said that her her background was somewhat unusual in physics. <laughs> strange now for such a distinguished astronomer um, hmm. but anyway of course she, she went through her course in flying colors with flying colors um, uh, and graduated with with honors uh, and um, but she was able to also to graduate in three years because uh, it was another of the wartime um, uh, changes that they had an accelerated course where uh, there were additional teaching weeks in the year and uh, students were able to graduate in three years instead of the usual four. So so she went at 17, and by the time she she finished at um, the age of, well, uh, barely 20, 20, she yeah, was 20. barely, barely 20.
3: Yeah.
2: Yes, and she immediately got married.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, uh, um, but... Um, and then, of course, that's the next stage of her, her education if you're ready to move on.
0: <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals.
1: Yeah, that, that's something that that comes across during that period in particular. What you describe in the book, the expectation that that people had of, of women going into science is that why should we invest this time in educating you when you're going to quit as soon as you get married? And, and that's one of the things I, I thought was fascinating to read about uh, Bob Rubin, her husband, which was the degree to which he supported her. He uh, he uh, uh, you know did a lot to to make. Her uh, continuing education, her pursuit of a doctorate, uh, work, and 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 to to help her succeed in that respect, and and how that was uh, obviously it was something that that uh, Vera uh, couldn't have done if she hadn't had that determination and drive and desire to do it. But it, that the degree to which it was you know that she was really pushing against that tide of expectation, and the degree to which she you know needed all those elements to overcome it to eventually. You would just simply get the doctorate, let alone pursue the career afterward.
2: Well, that's absolutely right. And I can tell you've read the book very, very thoroughly. (laughs) Um, Vera used to say, um, you know, rule number one, marry the right husband. (laughs) (laughs) And she was she was very um, fulsome in acknowledging uh, Bob's uh, support um uh not only that they shared a great love of science. He was um when she met him he was doing a postdoctoral postgraduate degree in uh well originally chemical engineering that had been a bit wartime it became physical chemistry but he was very skilled in physics chemistry and mathematics uh and they were really um able to talk science together and uh yeah. This was really important.
3: And we know that when Vera became an early career scientist, as we would call them these days, um, uh, Bob Bob was on hand for some of the more theoretical um, physics uh, that, that, that was involved. Mm-hmm. And um, with, uh, looking through her papers and so on, one can sense a kind of. Um, invisible hand in which he's in which he's saying well you know I know I know know how we can fix this Mm I know how you I I know how I know how you can you can solve this one Vera
2: yeah and um, it's very clear that in her early papers um, she was very happy to acknowledge the many discussions she had with Bob on, on the science stuff but also of course they were Deeply close in their shared wish to raise a large family, and uh, they went about it almost as soon as they were married. Yeah. And um, uh, the, there was didn't seem to be any question in either of their minds that it was a choice um, that uh, that they wanted. They wanted the family, and Vera somehow in the back of her mind knew that. She wanted to be an astronomer, but during those early years, she did she did worry about whether she was going to be. She 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 said over and over again, "Will I ever be an astronomer?" <clears throat> but um, uh, you know, you're absolutely right that um, it, it was the support of her family, and not not as well as Bob, the parents um, who who joined in and. Um, to, to uh, particularly over um, allowing her to ultimately to do her doctorate. We, um, we've we skipped over um, her years at, at Cornell a, a bit, so perhaps we should fill in that she went to join Bob at, at Cornell to do a master's degree. Yeah. Um, and um, by the time she'd finished, she had their first son, uh, at, at Davy, and the future looked a bit uncertain. Um, but um, for for her. But Bob took a job at the Applied Physics Laboratory, which was located on the northern fringe of Washington, and they moved there. And within a very short time, it became clear that Vera wasn't going to settle into the life of a suburban housewife. That wasn't going to make her happy at all. And um, so something had to be done to get her, Back into college and doing a PhD, so they worked out um, elaborate arrangements so that she could. At, um, well, first of all, they had to find somewhere where she could enroll, and what? And again, it had to be astronomy. She didn't want to go in a physics department. No, um, <laughs> no, physics, no physics department, and there was just one place. And that was Georgetown University on the uh, sort of on the, on the south side of, of Washington, quite a little drive away from where they were yes. living. Yes. Yes. Uh, but uh, she was welcomed with open arms there, despite the fact that she would got a baby in a baby in arms um, and and was pregnant, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the far sighted. Father Francis um, Haydn, who was the head of the astronomy department there, had no hesitation in enrolling her for her PhD. Um, it was, uh, but it was something of a struggle. Vera said it was the hardest thing she ever did in her life. And she was burning the candle at both uh, both ends, uh, leading a double life of um, being um, a, a mum of a very young family during the day. Uh twice a week attending lectures at um, six o'clock in the evening Mm. uh, with an an elaborate arrangement of Bob chauffeuring her there and the (laughs) parents looking after the children and so on. And then she'd come home and she'd work the night shift on her her work, her her, her graduate work. Uh, So, I mean, she did show that absolute grit and determination, which later... I think has always held her in good stead and in, in her um her observing work where she had the absolute stamina to be able to to do uh, long hours in, in an observatory dome
1: one of the things that it, it, it's a point you don't make overtly in the book but it's definitely there is how she was doing this during a time when it seemed astronomy was really beginning to open up the the, your, these, the post-war years uh you uh, you start to see growing interest in uh, outer space. You have uh, rocketry uh, having, you know, had a huge advancement because of the war you had, you describe at one point how, uh, uh, a radio telescope program that's able to able to take advantage of the wartime uh, advancements and, and leftover technology to take a step forward. It, it seemed as though it was a very exciting time to be in astronomy where people were really getting much more invested in going to the stars, in, in, in going to space and in exploring space, and, and that she was a beneficiary of that, especially in terms of her postgraduate work, in terms of her employment in it, in terms of staying invested in astronomy.
3: Yeah, that's ab- that's absolutely correct. Um, it's also worth pointing out that the great boom in uh, observational astronomy um, that uh, took place from about 1948. 1948 is when the 200-inch Palomar telescope uh, um, uh, opens in um, in California, and uh, this boom in um, observing the heavens using both radio telescopes and using optical telescopes is very much a West Coast uh, phenomenon. Um, uh, the facilities are out West and in the, and in the, and in the Southwest. Um, so uh, Vera at Georgetown, um, her, res- her research there uh, was to do with Reducing data, as we call it, from uh, eclipses of the sun, um, uh, that sort of thing, um, and uh, the, uh, the this 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 great um, expansion uh, of astronomy. Um, not very much of it took place in uh, in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, it was taking place in um, in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and also at also at Harvard. But most of the action was out west
2: that's true with the optical astronomy but to a certain extent you've just referred to it it was interesting that radio astronomy was equally taking place on the on the east coast yes, and it she was. took an early interest in in what was happening in the field of radio astronomy although it wasn't her choice of what what to enter but it was something that um, came back over and over again her interest in comparing radio and optical observations of galaxies yes yeah and it was because it was ultimately because she knew a radio astronomer that she ended up um, where she finally worked for the 50 yes. years of her life That's right.
1: I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon what her specific interests were with astronomy. What aspects of astronomy really engaged her and how did she establish a name for herself early on in in developing those interests?
2: Vera was interested in galaxies.
1: Yes, that's a that's a really important
3: point. She was interested in galaxies. She was not interested in the theory of galaxies. She was interested in what are the properties of galaxies. Um, how are the stars moving around in the galaxies? Uh, how are the great nebulae? Uh, what, what motion do they, um, do they exhibit? What's going on dynamically?
2: Inside the galaxy.
3: Inside the galaxy. Yeah. Um, with, with, with Vera, we, we well, there's, a, there's one exception to this, but... Um, She uh, did not get caught up later in her career uh, with um, all the stuff to do with the um, uh, very distant, very energetic things that radio astronomers and and optical astronomers have been discovering. um, Quasars, black holes, that sort of thing. Uh, She was galaxies, galaxies, galaxies.
2: (laughs) it goes back i think partly to um when she was a graduate student at cornell um she was she was inspired there by the lectures of um one of her teachers there martha stair carpenter um, who was an expert on galactic dynamics and um all along it, it was it was the idea about what is it that makes galaxies different? Now, anyone who's seen pictures of galaxies knows that they come in all manner of shapes and sizes. They're almost like human faces, no two are the same. And yet um, there are similarities, you know, like we've all got two eyes and a nose and so Mm -hmm. on. So galaxies can be put into broad groups. Um, But what fascinated Vera ultimately was the idea that if... If she could understand how things were moving about, all the stars and the gas inside a galaxy was moving about, perhaps that would do something to explain why galaxies are different shapes and maybe how they evolve over time.
3: Yes, and it also um, by mm-hmm. looking at the by looking at the motions of the components of the galaxy, uh, that opens up the possibility of being able to see what the distribution mm-hmm of the mass is within the galaxy. And that, of course, is important um, for the theorists. Uh, So, uh, yeah.
2: But of course, she wasn't able to do any of this until she made this very important decision to change jobs. Yes. And um, uh, the really, really important, significant thing that happened was that in 1965, for various reasons, which we probably don't have time to go into now, she decided it was time to move on from Georgetown. And um, she went to uh, the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism of the Carnegie Institution of Washington, which uh, was and still is um, on the north side of of Washington, but has recently now become part of what's now known as the Earth and Planets Laboratory. Yes. Um so she resigned her job she walked in there went and she saw her radio astronomy friend bernie burke and said do you know i really fancy working here which was an unusual thing to do because they weren't doing any optical astronomy and um, they'd never had a woman on the staff at all <laughs> so, anyway um what at that time the director there, Merle Tuve, who was also a very famous physicist, famous for many things. In, um, I won't go off on a, a sidetrack now. But um, uh, they, they put a lot of effort into developing an electronic device for astronomers called an image tube, which um, added on the on top of your spectrograph that was going to uh, take a spectrum of a star or a galaxy, would make it 10 times more sensitive to light. And this was really important because at, the, at that time, the 200 inch really had a bit of a, a dominance of being the only telescope that large and um, wanted to be able to do similar work with much smaller telescopes. <laughs>
3: yeah. So <clears throat> the Carnegie Institution was, um, had developed this uh, image, <coughs> had developed this image tube concept, mm-hmm. so that existing telescopes um, would be able to compete with the 200 inch at Palomar for certain kinds of investigation. Not every kind of investigation, but for certain categories of uh, of investigation, and. Um, uh, that was a bit. That was a big breakthrough, um, and and Vera was in the uh, very good position of being able to demonstrate the uh, astronomical capabilities of combining the image tube with a spectrograph.
2: And she was hired to, to do that. She she turned up just at the right moment. She was hired to do it, and she. Um Formed immediately a partnership with the physicist who'd been doing the technical development, um, a man called um, Kent Ford, and they remained um, uh, professional partners uh, throughout the, the entire time that that Ford um, worked there until his retirement. And I think you'll think you will find that all their papers. Uh, Are Rubin and Ford the entire yeah. lot of them, or, or sometimes with a few other authors as well? So they were um, a complementary team, and uh, they had the right the right piece of equipment because they were able to do. Vera was able to devise an observing program that nobody else could do, really. Yeah, no. and um, and she also just fell in love with observing. She came to observing a bit late. She was in her mid-30s before she was had her first experience of observing um, in a dome professionally, uh, doing serious professional uh, observing. But she immediately fell in love with it. <clears throat> and she used to say she was never happier the, than when she was in the dome at night. <laughs> um, and um, so... What she developed was a, a, a very great observing skill um, and um, a very, a, a very strong worth ethic of, um, of wanting to um, uh, to put in a great deal of, of time of being extremely careful. And what was really important about her work was she was a great observer. Uh, she wasn't really interested in the theory. She wanted to make observations that other astronomers would be able to rely on, that that she wanted other astronomers to be able to say, um, we're absolutely uh, able to say that what Vera Rubin's done is the last word in these observations. Yes. And and that was the task that she set herself. Um, and she, she never set out to investigate or discover dark matter with which she then subsequently became very much associated. This was all something that kind of happened on the side. (laughs) It was was almost accidental. It was a consequence of the work that Vera was already doing and had already planned to do.
1: Yeah. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit on on what dark matter is and what, how, it, uh, the, the confirmation or, or evidence of it came from her observations.
2: If only we knew what dark matter was. <laughs> Come uh, we, we wouldn't st- be sitting here if we did. But, um. Um,
3: we don't know what it is, uh, but um, Vera was one of the first um, to uh, use the, the data that she had got on how... Um, stars and uh, particularly bright nebulae are moving within the galaxy that they belong to. Because, as I said earlier, um, you can then interpret those data in order to infer where the where the mass is. And uh, what was found was that the outer parts of spiral galaxies. The stuff in orbit uh, in the in the disc um, was actually going faster than one would expect um, from the distribution of matter that you could infer just from the visible stars. Um, and so, over a period, um, I guess Jacqueline, it's true. It's true to say we're talking about something that. Emerged rather slowly over 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 something like um, ten years that the the, ra- the radio astronomers had been getting the same effect when they were looking at the velocities of hydrogen in spiral galaxies. That's
2: well, that's true. The in, in many ways the, sto- the unfolding story of dark matter in this period, and we're talking about roughly. 1970 to 1970 to 1980, 1980. Um, it was um, it, it was quite it's quite a complicated story and um uh, it, it was a combination of things that were happening part of it were the observations which um vera's optical work was extremely important um But she never claimed to be the first. Um, uh, She acknowledged that there were radio astronomers doing similar work and getting similar results at the same time, or even just before um, she got started on her optical work. Um, But um, it's often said that what Vera did persuaded more people in some (laughs) ways because radio observations seem a bit kind of obscure and more difficult for people to understand, whereas um, optical observations, uh, people were were able to understand more. And and Vera was a very good communicator. She wrote clear papers and she she acquired enormous quantities of data. She observed very large numbers of uh, uh, of galaxies. But Vera did not concern herself about what, what was causing this anomalous rotation, she noted that it, that it happened, but she regarded it very much as the job of others to interpret why that might be. And um, it was also the case that there were there were theoretical developments going on at the same time in the early 1970s, um, which were equally very very important. And those are uh, particularly we're talking about um, Jim Peebles mm. and Jerry Ostryker's, um theoretical work, mm. which illustrated basically that a, a, a spiral galaxy or a galaxy that's in a disc shape just can't actually hang together and exist yeah. a, a, unless it's surrounded by um, uh, a big sphere of uh, mass that's, that's keeping it stable. And that was all happening at around the same time.
3: Yes. Uh,
2: And um, and then also there was quite a lot of concern about the universe as a whole. You know. That's right. What's holding the universe as a whole together. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. They had an expression. Um, it mainly the radio astronomers. They had an expression which was, "The universe contains a lot of missing mass." Um, <laughs> what, which, what they what they meant was, um, uh, they didn't they didn't know where to find it. Now this is this is where uh, Vera's stuff, um, the field she's working in, starts to become interesting, because mm-hmm. ev- because eventually. The people interested in the expansion of the universe and how massive is the universe, um, they connect with uh, those who are saying that there's this anomalous rotation in spiral galaxies um, and it indicates that there's a large amount of invisible matter maybe arranged in great halo around the galaxy that sort of thing uh and 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 and, and suddenly there's a connection of ah oh, well maybe the unseen matter is actually the missing mass uh, so um
2: yeah the people were beginning then to sort of connect the idea of what cosmologists were thinking about with what was actually being found in these halos around uh, around yeah. galaxies, for which there was no other really ex- explanation except there must be something there that was that had got gravity and was pulling, but you couldn't yeah. see it and you couldn't explain it. But of course, at first, people thought, well, maybe. And, In fact, um, in the longer history of uh, dark matter which goes right back to the 1930s yes there had been a sprinkling of people who made observations and said well it looks as if these galaxies are more massive than all the stars we can actually see maybe there are a lot of faint stars or maybe there's a lot of dust we can't yes. see or something but nobody was really thinking of it on a grand scale of something very very exotic and i can still remember i think when even when we were sort of students and postdocs so a lot of this Discussion taking place was a lot of joking about. Well, it could all be house bricks, or you know, I, if it was IBM <laughs> golf ball typewriters. Or even IBM <laughs> <even laughs> golf ball typewriters. People used to joke and say, you know, if there were load of those in space, you know, we wouldn't be able to detect them. Um, so, um, but it was—it's only been very much later, really, that 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 we there's been enough um, good enough observational evidence to suggest that um, the explanation has to be elsewhere, and it's almost certainly uh, in some kind of mysterious particle. That's what most people seem to think yes. at the moment.
3: Yeah. yeah. I mean,
2: there are there are other explanations, uh, as they say. But Vera herself didn't like being asked very much. You know, she'd often be pressed somewhat on, yes. on this topic, and she she backed off uh, wanting to express most of an opinion. Um, I don't think she very much cared for the idea originally that that it was exotic particles, but um, she always said it was somebody else's business to sort that out. (laughs) Uh,
3: Sorry, go ahead. uh, Another characteristic of of Vera, Mm -hmm. which is good to recall at this point, is um, she was meticulous in her use of what's called the scientific method, Um, You know, there is a there is a particular manner in which you make your measurements, you reduce your data, you involve colleagues, peer review and all this sort of thing. And um, Vera, Vera was very precise and her observations, as we've already said, were were a very, uh, very high quality. But she didn't want to get involved in kind of. Colliding bandwagons of theorists saying, oh, well, um, at Harvard we all think we all think it's this," or "No, no, 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 that's wrong." No, no, in, no, no, no. In in, in Pasadena, in at Caltech, um, uh, we think it must all be that. Um, she uh, she was very good at just quietly saying, um, "Look, we simply don't know." In in other words, the data there's not sufficiently it is there's not sufficient of it um to be able to uh discriminate between all of these rival theories
2: and personally she liked a quiet life she liked a quiet it was life which why she stayed at dtm the whole time it's um in a sort of almost semi rural com- uh, uh setting and uh It's a place with a very special kind of research ethos where people could get on without um, too much questioning with long-term projects, no pressure to publish in the short term, no pressure to to teach students. And she absolutely adored that. She was never tempted away (coughs) to be a big professor somewhere because she wanted the quiet life, and she said that she she took on these long-term projects because nobody else was doing it she could just get on with it it was a good excuse for spending weeks <laughs> week many weeks of the year in a, in a dome observing which, which what, she, what she liked uh, and um, so it was very much uh, the kind of research she really really wanted to do <laughs>
1: I feel that saying that she liked a quiet life deserves a bit of qualification because you also describe, especially as her uh, stature in the profession grew, how she used her stature, she used her position to uh, basically make the case for women in science. She, you describe her as being quite active in, in, in terms of the, 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 you know the cause of women generally, the cause of women in, in, in society, the cause of women within astronomy, the cause of women within science more generally, and, and that that's something that as she became more famous, as she uh, became more renowned, that she became uh, very uh, committed to that. You know, basically using her 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 stature not just for her own you know professional benefit, but also for the benefit of of those who hadn't even entered the profession.
2: Yes, that's that's completely true, and she had a very powerful sense of her duty, and 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 also, um, well, she was she was very driven uh, as well to to want to do more for for women. Um, I, I would stand by saying that she liked the quiet life, because although she was ready to stand up and to make her voice heard and so on, she always wanted to be able to. Retreat to that calm, and mm. she wrote. She wrote a most charming letter to um, the, the director at DTM, which was in, in the files, saying when she'd been away for three months, being a visiting professor somewhere, just saying she was so thankful to be back uh, at DTM and appreciating the calm and the peace, and she just thanked him for making it possible. So, in a sense. I think she could do what she did because her roots were very firmly in this kind of peaceful place where she felt so, so comfortable and so at home. And I think perhaps that it gave her the strength to do all those other things, um, which, were using her voice exactly as as you say. And, um, uh, she, It was this stubbornness then that took over again. This this absolute streak of stubbornness that that when she got her teeth into something and she was just so, um, so angry really inside about um, the way women were treated, that she felt really powerfully that she got to do what she could about it. But she was never angry in public. She had a a wonderful sense of ironic humor and, um, and she always argued her cases by um regimenting the data like she did with her science that is she would set out how many Things, uh, how many meetings had been with all male speakers and without, yeah, uh, and, and how many awards had gone to men with non going to women, and how many committees there were that were all men and no women, and what, and, and then she would present a list of women who were all extremely well qualified and could be approached to do this and that and so on. So, um, and uh, she she went about the whole thing in this kind of. Um, Almost scientific, scientific way. Yeah. I, I think people didn't like to run up against Vera because she uh, uh, on all this because she was quite stubborn and she would she would write. Um, for instance, she got very uh, exercised about s- sexist language. She didn't like he and her, he and his, and so on. She she preferred to use the plural they and their to um, so that it, it didn't mean partic- sound particularly male or female. And, and she explained why she felt that this had an impact and, and the, the psychological way in which it had an impact. And she would write year after year after year to the same people saying, this is my annual letter to complain about (laughs) your catalog or about your research applications or whatever. And She just didn't give up. (laughs) It's just a few little anecdotes there to give a bit of insight into, um, into what she was like with that campaigning. And also, she was a person of great humanity, and great kindness, yeah. And the people who encountered her and sought her help never forgot. she she was truly loved.
1: Yeah. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're both working on now?
2: <laughs> well, right now, there seems to be um, quite a few things in connection with the publication of the book next week. So, a number of articles and blogs and things to write. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, we haven't started, we, we have some ideas, I think, for some, some of ideas the books yeah. that we might want to do. But um, uh, unfortunately, I think COVID is getting in the way at the moment. Mm. Um, but, yeah. but there are there's also papers. Simon, you're busy on some papers, aren't
3: um, you? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm busy on doing, um, on doing research papers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've been writing on the Belgian um, uh, cosmologist and um, priest uh, Georges Lemaitre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done I've done quite a few pieces uh, uh, on him. Uh, he's um, he's now described as being the father of the Big Bang mm-hmm. uh, because he's the, he's the first one who's got um, an explosive expanding model of the universe that actually fits with Einstein's. Uh, general theory of relativity. Um, uh, I've also been working on uh, uh, George Gamoff. George Gamoff uh, yes. uh, George, George was a very um, uh, eclectic um, uh, mm. and imaginative physicist, and he was actually Vera Rubin's um, doctoral advisor uh, because um, uh, George, until 1950, Uh, until 1956. Um, He was a professor from 1934 to 56. He was a professor of physics uh, at George Washington um, uh, University. So, um, George Gamoff sort of slightly overlaps with the world I've been accustomed to researching in <laughs> yes. Washington with with Vera. So, so there, so there, there are some things where I'm getting two for the price of one. Yes. But uh, uh, it's, um, it's 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 bi- bio- biography of 20th century astronomers yes. is is what I, I, what I like.
2: And that perhaps we could also mention that. Um, uh, we've also been doing a little bit of work on the history of radio astronomy in Cambridge. Oh, yes, because we have. We've had um, a, a family member who uh, worked the entire of his uh, career um, uh, in Martin Ryle's radio astronomy group at Cambridge right from the beginning. And um, uh, since he's passed on, it's emerged in the family that a large collection of the photographs and things he took and his memoirs and so on. And I'm, Helping my my brother-in-law who's got possession of this material to uh, put together a um, a story about um, uh, the radio astronomer Bruce Elsmore who worked yeah. with um, who Worked with Martin Ryle for all his all his life. So that's another little interesting thing. Um, that's on the go
1: Well, those sound like fantastic projects and I hope that uh, When you come out with the next uh, manuscript that we can uh, perhaps have you back on one of our channels Oh, we'd love to do that.
2: (laughs) Well, as you can tell, once we get excited, we don't mind talking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Jacqueline, Simon, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Yep. Thank you, Bob.
2: Thank you. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about
0: anywhere.